You're listening to the I Love You Keep Going podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome, everybody. This is I Love You Keep Going. It is March 30th, 2023, 7.38 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And I've been fascinated by the uh, conversation around the emergence of uh, artificial intelligence, mainly chat GPT. I don't know if you've played around with it at all. Um, I tried it and it's uh, so wildly inaccurate in in the things that it says that I have to check everything with Google. to make sure that it that it that's realistic uh, or accurate, it's um, Christian. I was I was talking to my brother, who's more technological than I am today, about that very thing, and I was trying to explain that, like I don't think that there's like an epistemic gap with that, where you, you don't know the basis for where its information is coming from, and that it can't have insight or meaning, but it can have like data. Um, right and he was he was really insisting that i should like try it for myself so he was giving me like a little buddhist reversal or something (laughs) but but he he fully believed that they had like meaning and insight and 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 maybe in totally naive way which i found interesting so i said to chat gbt can you uh, give me the percentages of pop of the population of earth divided by continent and it gave me the percentages, and when I added them up, it added up to 108. <laughs> That's what I mean by inaccuracies. <laughs> uh, 108 is not a bad number in, in Buddhist circles, of course, but <laughs> not what you would expect. <clears throat> so. Uh, I think of it as a as a more conversational version of of what what's already there in the world in terms of search. You know, you ask it to write a poem, and it writes a poem. I love poetry, and I spend a lot of time reading poetry. And the poems that it generates are generic and un- uninteresting to me because they don't really have a point of view. They're not really. Uh, <clears throat> It, it 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 isn't a voice. It, it it's so generic and indeterminate that to me it's uninteresting as a poem. <clears throat> I've seen some of the visual art that it creates, uh, and it has that razzle dazzle sort of feel to it. But ultimately, it's also not interesting as as a expression of the human experience. Now, obviously, artificial intelligence is not a word that is actually actually what we're talking about. We're just talking about um, big data sets being crunched, which is a whole different thing, I think. But I did uh, have somebody send me an uh, article about the immediate moratorium that we have to have on all of these large language models, because if we don't, uh, all life on the planet will be eliminated which I also thought was quite interesting. Um, and really what, what we're talking about here is view. I have the experience of that 
that admonishment like Y2K. Do you remember Y2K? Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> I actually couldn't understand how Y2K could be taken seriously as an idea. Uh, it, it seemed impossible that uh, the whole world would collapse. And so I, that's how my mind is orienting this conversation. Although I can see that the military is probably making uh, automatic sort of machines that are useful in the <coughs> service of war. They have such a problem with the drone uh, pilots uh, having PTSD and other negative consequences of flying those missions. I imagine the police would also like to have those. Although <clears throat> that, that again is talking about this idea of view. There was an article in the, in the, the paper uh, about uh, tightness and looseness in view and tightness being associated with these ideas of rigid uh, control of ideas, rigid control of morality, rigid control of what you really can believe or not believe and that that's associated with the uh, kind of <clears throat> uh, restrictions in in how you can actually be uh, how you can represent yourself and then looseness is more where uh, there's a there's a range of expressions, a range of ideas that you can express without friction from the people around you. So maybe we could talk about a tight view versus a loose view. The uh, geographic association was the southern states had very tight views and the west coast and the northeast had very loose views and the middle of the country was, was in between. We make the conceptual reality that we have around our conditioning. So we, we have the capacity to sense something. We have an object that can be sensed by that sense gate. So uh, light by uh, the retina picking up photons, uh, the ear sensitive to a, a narrow frequency of sound, vibrations, the body sensitive to a narrow range of temperature. We can smell some things, we can taste some things. But that pure sensing data doesn't actually line up for anything. It doesn't mean anything in, a, in and of itself. There's nothing intrinsic about any of it. And what I mean by that is three people could have the same experience of the same thing happening, and it's very likely almost a necessity of the nature of the, of the human condition that three realities emerge from that. We have the capacity to sense the object that can be sensed when it makes contact with that capacity. We create a sensing experience, which is unattached in the Buddhist sense, not fixated, not solid, without meaning. It's evaluated for processing speed. Does it need urgent attention? Does it not matter? If there's time for a pleasant experience, do we have that time? And then it's compared to the perceptual database, 
which is filled with all of the previously experienced events that have been recorded and also the imagination so that if there's a unique uh, event that hasn't been already interpreted we have the capacity to understand what that is and then if either there's a previous entry or the imagination takes hold and creates a meaning for this undifferentiated, unfixated, ultimate reality, it rolls into conceptual reality. And if the, those those views are tight, then we, we have a sense of that meaningfulness being more universal than if it's loose. We have a sense that actually it applies to us because we're the ones who've made it up, may or may not have a usefulness for other people. When I contemplate the existential threat of uh, artificial intelligence taking over the world and killing all life, it's very hard for me to make sense of that. It really re resonates not at all, uh, which is not to say that it, it it is or is not something that could happen. But then the conflict in Ukraine and the threat of nuclear war, which appears now and then in, in the paper, actually is quite frightening to me. Now, I grew up in the 50s where we rehearsed nuclear attacks by hiding under our desks. I, I, uh, if you're not uh, aware of uh, how uh, the nuclear age was welcomed uh, in elementary schools across the country, they would ring the... Uh, the uh, I, do we even have those anymore? We used to have the the siren that would ring, which would meant which meant that you had to run for your fallout shelters, is what what we called them. And in the town I grew up in, they tested it every Thursday at ten a.m. So the 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 air raid siren would go off. <clears throat> It was quite loud, I remember. Everybody just assuming that it was 10 a.m., not frightened by it, but everybody knew what it was. I'm talking about school-age children. Christian? Uh, I think the fear for millennials, uh, I don't know if it's still around for us, but it was always the Bermuda Triangle. Yes, that was my my uh, ultimate idea for suicide. Steal a boat and sail around the Bermuda Triangle until you vanish. <laughs> my mother was very skeptical about the value of school children hiding under desks in a nuclear attack. So I don't think it was even about uh, practicality or anything that was useful. It was simply to relieve the anxiety of, of was it the children or parents? The third of great existential uh, threat of our time, of course, is uh, <clears throat> climate change. I have the visceral sense that the opportunity actually to mitigate climate change has come and gone and that we didn't do anything about it. 
So now we're just going to have climate change. And what that is really going to lead to is these massive migrations of people out of the places that are no longer going to be habitable, which would be the uh, equator zone. So about 20% of the population of the world is going to have to move into uh, different climate zones and then how willing we are to allow that to happen without a lot of friction. It looks to me now like we're not that willing to let it happen because there is a lot of friction around climate refugees being able to move freely. They're not going to be able to stay where they are, so it, it seems like an impractical view to think that we don't have to accommodate this in some way. You know, I thought the idea of the wall across the southern border was comical in the sense you build a 30-foot wall across the southern portion of the country and then somebody comes along with a 31-foot ladder and they just climb over it. So how do we get into these views? How do we construct these experiences of reality? There's a, there's a, a dialogue, a culture-wide dialogue, a society-wide dialogue. So society is this collection of all of the different cultures that we have. And then each of the cultures forms around specific ideas and beliefs. Do we have a container that allows all of those expressions of all of those cultures? Or do we need to, or do we feel the need to confine the structures of society that don't allow the expressions of some of those cultures? <clears throat> if I think back on the idea of nuclear threat, there's just hundreds and hundreds of experiences of that being presented and the responses that we took, uh, that worry. We built this fantastic array of nuclear missiles across the country. I, I, I remember, um, <clears throat> that the technology got to the point where uh, there was a, a movement to replace it with more modern technology. And it, it was like the cost of which was some huge amount, like $19 trillion to upgrade our nuclear arsenal, which was not feasible. It's just too much m money for that. What are the views in a society where so much of our resources goes toward this defensive posture? One of the things I notice about the conversation around AI being this uh, terrible, uncontrollable technology which is going to wipe out all of life on the planet, it has this, this fearful quality, this almost paranoiac quality, but it isn't so dissimilar to the uh, mentality or the, the, the dialogue that went into uh, convincing us as a, as a society, a culture, 
to build this vast array of, of weapons. The weapons themselves, of course, uh, capable of eliminating life. <clears throat> Did you read in the paper that Jack Ma has returned to China, the, the founder of Alibaba, uh, that the Chinese uh, government has opened up to him again? Uh, he uh, famously said that China has all of this infrastructure and all of this technological advance because they spent $6 trillion on infrastructure and, and uh, the U.S. spent $6 trillion on the war in the Middle East, which uh, is a different value. In this, in this culture that I live in, which, which is part of society, uh, there is a strong resistance to the idea that we should be doing this, and at the same time, a powerlessness to do anything different about it. And so often the drive there is to move into a kind of unconsciousness about it and withdraw from engagement around it. I think that that was particularly uh, strong uh, in the previous administration. There was a, there was a sense of confusion about how the ideas that were being expressed there were really uh, resonating, at least in, in the circle that I tend to travel in. It seemed so obvious from that cultural view of another cultural view, and that that unconsciousness, that, that desire simply to remove from it because it creates such turmoil, such distress is very strong. How then do you come into a place of equanimity where you really can be in, uh, gauged with this experience as it's unfolding, this uh, understanding, this cultural bias, this way in which you create the view of what's actually happening, and at the same time open to the experience of other cultural views? Christian? George, you've described like very much in terms of emotions that we get we get our labels or we get how we experience emotions, you know, transmitted to us from our parents or caregivers largely, um, attachment figures, I guess. And I'm really curious how you think that these societal views get inside of us, because I would think that there'd be some, you know, the, the way that our attachment is might affect our ability to trust or not to trust kind of the outside world and take information from it. And so like, I think of disorganized people as being more susceptible to conspiracy theory views. You know, I think of avoidant people as being maybe more susceptible to kind of libertarian views to put it in a really uh, dry, generic way. So do you think the parents are the sort of ultimate conduits for the views or or there's like mentalizing factors involved or how do you think that the societal actually filters down to the individual? Um, I, I probably think of it more as a mentalizing capacity. 
and high mentalizing is more associated with security than it is with insecurity or disorganization. Um, but I, I think that my experience of uh, people who get caught up in ideas uh, that seem irrational to me uh, and not well thought about are uh, not uh, using the mentalizing uh, of spontaneous versus monitoring very well, and nor the one of effective versus uh, cognitive. Um, just to use two and make it a little simpler, uh, they're very swept up in spontaneity, spontaneous responses. They don't monitor much. They don't track whether an idea remains true over a period of time or is not is proven untrue over time because they don't monitor it. They're not cognitive. They don't think th through things. They don't have the mentalizing capacity to do that. Uh, they're very emotional. So if it feels uh, like it matches uh, their emotional experience, then it becomes real in the way that all conceptual reality is real. It's not different. Their perception of conceptual reality is not different fundamentally than your conception of uh, your conceptual reality. Does it match ultimate reality is really the question. If you're constantly in this proposition of touching into the conceptual reality that you make from ultimate reality back into ultimate reality to see whether or not the conceptual reality that you've made matches ultimate reality, and you're constantly in a process of evaluating the accuracy of your perceptions of things and the accuracy of what you make out of those perceptions, then, and you have uh reliable sources of input then then maybe you can make a better map of, of what's actually happening if you can if you can mentalize better you can of course take in more experience uh, and more of that will be reflected in your conceptualization of things and if you can't do that then it will be less accurate really So then how does that map out on different attachment strategies? Um, dismissing people or people who have a dismissing quality to their uh, attachment strategies rely on internal working models that they've created themselves. They don't validate them much. So that would be a place that could get quite distorted. Fearfully preoccupied people are in such an in internal state of chaos, they can't really make sense of of what's happening too much. Fearful uh, avoidant people tend to get quite paranoid uh, and to assign sinister motives to other people. They also don't do a lot of checking. That's the, the, that constant. I think of it almost as a rocking motion. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. This is what I'm sensing. This is what I've made. How well does what I've made match the sensing and this constant back and forth and investigating? I grew up in a <clears throat> Republican family. My mother used to say that she was significantly to the right 
of Attila the Hun, jokingly. <laughs> they sent me to uh, Interlaken, which is a music camp. And when I came back and I was talking about the different conversations that I had, she said that she thought it was the worst mistake they could have made because I was exposed to ideas outside of uh, the Republican bubble. But I didn't find the Republican bubble ideas that compelling. I, I, I didn't see the, the happiness in the, the pursuit of, of social status and material things. My, but you know, I, I grew up in, uh, in some sense in uh, an immigrant family, Irish. Uh, you know, shanty Irish, not not lace curtain Irish. They they came poor, uh, mid nineteenth century, and and there was a, a strong ethos of moving up the economic ladder. A lot of focus on education in the generations before, and then we, in some sense, arrived where uh, all of that generational effort was supposed to. Uh, land and produce this ideal life, but it, it wasn't, it was clearly not that from my perspective. So uh, the, the way that it landed on me was that that wasn't a, that was not a pursuit that was going to lead to a sense of, uh, of liveliness. So it wasn't being sent to camp that, that changed my view. It was that period of adolescence where the mind expands and your cognitive ability expands and you can take in ideas from other places than the limits of your family. And uh, in that contrast, seeing the limitations of where I was and, and wanting, uh, rejecting that and wanting something different. But then we each grow up in, in our family systems and we, we, we learn really well the system that we grow up in. And sometimes we have the capacity for insight into the nature of how that system is operating and the effects that it's having on people. And if we don't uh, simply deny it or suppress it, particularly in that adolescent period where the mind really expands in its capacity to, to think and to understand if we, we allow that to happen. We often can see it more clearly and, and maybe want something different. And then uh, are we able to then, and we're then, when I say move towards something, I'm talking about exploration, the exploration piece here. We're able to move into primary exploration where we're actually looking to satisfy the meaning qualities of life, <clears throat> pursue meaningfulness, or do we get uh, sidetracked? I grew up in a family that was very oriented toward secondary exploration, uh, big house, big cars, a lot of nice things. But the, the meaningful aspect was, was completely unattended to. Christian?
but I, I take it that there was a certain either freedom for you intellectually or at least lack of restriction like during that time I think of I've met people that maybe came from a very restricted worldview like you said uh you mentioned different geographic regions that might have um have that and I would think that during that time if a family was really restrictive on what they allowed in uh you know for their child or that they explained things in very black and white ways to the child that that might restrict the child's taking in those other views taking in opposing views but that wasn't the case in your family no it was very restricted uh, i just learned to keep secrets i learned to lie those were the, the strategies that i had i learned to pretend which, you know, um, ultimately was not such a horrible thing because I did manage to pursue the things that I wanted to pursue. I just had to keep them secret. The, the consequences of um, making a mistake uh, were usually pretty bad. And then I, I, I actually, I think I became completely unruly and so they they really just stopped interfering with me. That was what ended up happening. It was already neglectful. They just disengaged altogether. I think uh, my mother disengaged because she found it so hurtful and so rejecting that I didn't embrace the ideas that she was offering, but my dad was something different. This, this is a conversation about view. And so when you uh, don't have that environment where you can freely express yourself and you do end up having to keep secrets, you do have to uh, end up internalizing it. Of course, it uh, distorts the, the experience of that. What's important, I think, about this is uh, th that you begin in your practice of meditation to pull these things apart so that you can actually see what happened, right? This is one of the skill set of secure function to, to uh, understand <clears throat> the consequences of, I have, a, have this in a brochure. We put out a brochure of the characteristics of secure attachment. Um, uh, seeing clearly what happened without minimizing the negative effects is an important aspect of this. Um, part of that is the um, the development of positivity, intentional positivity, and associated with the self experience. When the self experience arises, we have this framework, this working model that has all of these memory uh, and experiential just these little algorithms of creating experience associated with it. And when the sense of self arises, it's arising because these gists are activating patterns of experience in the body that we then recognize as the experience of self, right? Is that making sense? Then when you grow up in an environment like I described, that array of activations is very negative. 
the experience of the self is very negative. The reflection from uh, uh, um, a family system where your ideas are not embraced and you have to keep them secret because the consequences of retaliation for expressing them creates a, a, a working model of self that has that trepidation and that fearfulness that if you real, reveal yourself, you're in, you're in danger. And so every time the self is activated, you have a sense of being in danger in the world. That's the, the, the realm of disorganized people, right? How you know yourself is because you're in danger. That's one of the aspects of uh, attachment functioning, how that works. You're not really in danger after you've left the dangerous environment, but because the way that you know yourself is this perception that you're always in danger, each time the sense of self arises, you have the experience of, or you have the creation of conceptual reality that uh, makes the world dangerous. This is again the thing that we're we need to really begin to investigate when we're exploring uh, the view related to attachment conditioning, but when we create these views and we make them accurate and real, and we then push out into the world with our intention and action that our perception of these things is accurate and expect the, the group that we're, th we're in to respond in the way that we experience it, then we have this, this push that moves out beyond the sense of self into the small group but then as it affects the small groups and the small groups push against the larger group we create a culture-wide or society-wide experience i'm just touching into the idea of ai being the significant existential threat to the survival of the planet that it's often talked about as and i have it doesn't resonate at all for me i uh, i think we're far away from actual artificial intelligence but there was a caveat in the in the in the article i read that it doesn't have to be conscious it doesn't have to be a unique uh uh, identity, uh, just the mechanic, uh, just the mechanical nature of uh, the way that these large language models are, would be enough. Christian? I think I have a fear to what you were saying earlier that it's going to just flood the world with really boring and crappy art. That is <laughs> <laughs> existential <laughs> if like it's just crappy art and you can't you can't even get to the good stuff um it's very funny because uh one um the word processor came out the great comic fear was the deluge of crap poetry as if the handwritten stuff weren't already a tidal wave <laughs> Now there's there's just no limit. Chat GBT, please write five hundred haikus. One after the other. Um, 
Did you, there was an article in the paper about a rather well-known uh, author who uh, they discovered like 75 plagiarized passages in the, in the book that they just published, which uh, meant that they had been using these uh, generative systems to write the books and then hadn't bothered to run them through the software that would then evaluate whether or not uh, the all of the plagiarized material was either uh, cited or uh, rewritten enough that it was no longer plagiarized. And uh, <clears throat> the fear of uh, college professors that all of the papers that were going to be uh, generated in class were going to be uh, these uh, large language model generations and the high school. And it, it does create that uh, self-fulfilling problem of people not really learning uh, to think and just substituting non-thinking for uh, how they begin to perceive the world so that they don't have a way of understanding their perception or view of things because they, they don't have a, a way of uh, mentalizing it, really. The public education system was supposed to, to uh, save us from the mob, as uh, my mother would say. And we've systematically stripped that system so that it doesn't function very well. And now uh, we have the mob. <laughs> so uh, did we not know that? We, we did know that. Why did we do it anyway? Uh, because there's an advantage in it for some groups. That's how I think about it. So... <clears throat> Here we are at this point in the world, the way that the world is, with these different things happening. How do we remain engaged in this process of uh, community where the, the uh, tightness side of things wants to restrict all of this and the looseness side of things thinks that all of these things should be uh, in play where do you land in this? Uh, and not want to just withdraw and shut down and not pay attention to it anymore because it's too intractable, it's too painful. Uh, so that that is really the intersection, I think, that, that uh, is useful in practice, that we can really open into this experience of every moment unfolding uh, and receive it all and not have to tune it all out and uh, fall into a kind of ignorance uh, in the Buddhist sense of the word, not paying attention, distraction. We are a culture that loves distraction above all things. I wish that it wasn't so violent and that it didn't kill so many women, but that is the form of entertainment that we've embraced to distract us from the intensity of these experiences. Is that all making sense in terms of a conversation about view? 
So then in terms of practice, I think one of the things to do is to begin to notice the way that the mind reacts to that. And I like to do that by, I call it investigating self-generated emotion, where you're actually tracking your thought processes in reaction to the present moment. Uh, I talk about it in terms of the one-off thoughts that are related to the arising and passing of the present moment. Uh, Experience just that activation of the self-experience in relationship to the present moment. Maybe the mind is still or quiet. And then the mind caught up in repetitive thought. That's where the, the experience of the present moment overwhelms and we withdraw into the thinking to escape from it. One of the things that is important to be able to do as you're out and about in the world and tracking things is to notice when you're actually engaged in the experience of the present moment and when you've withdrawn into a thinking process or a, a you know fantasy process or a planning process or a, a sentiment, sentimentalizing memory process and pushing into the present moment each time coming out of that back into the present moment. Um, So why don't we do a little practice and focus on that particular way of looking at things. Maybe the existential threat of AI is actually uh, what that tight view is. And then I wonder what that conditioning would be that I would have to engage in in order to actually experience that because it's so it seems so foreign. We'll do a little bit of concentration to settle the mind and then do uh, a period of investigating self-generated emotion. Ringing the bell. Any comments or questions about the practice that we did? So let's see. We have a level two starting in April, if you're interested in that. Um, We have a meditation and addiction coming up, which is three Saturdays around uh, that uh, material. We haven't done it in a while, so I think it's going to be good. I'm co-teaching that with uh, Stas Fedicin. Um What else? Anyway, there's a bunch of stuff on the website. Uh, take a look at it. We're going to do our first uh, level two class uh, during the day uh, rather than uh, in the afternoon, uh, which is better for European time if you're, if that makes sense. I think that starts in July. I'm doing a in-person uh, level one in Utrecht uh, in the first weekend, first week or so of June. Um, we're, we've set some dates to do a I Love You Keep Going uh, weekend retreat in Oakland in um, July. I think it's in July. Uh, so uh, that might be something to consider. I, I love you. Keep going. Um, Daylongs are about uh, 
exploring collaborative relationship systems. So it's the uh, attachment lens on uh, collaborative relationships. Uh, I think that's about it uh, for now. We, uh, we, we've actually finished booking the whole year, but I'm having a hard time remembering the second half of the year. So let's leave that out there in the future. Um, I offer the teaching in this format uh, freely, uh, but I do hope that you'll make a donation if you have resources. Uh, it helps support me and also the work that Metagroup does. Any amount is appreciated, certainly, but please come and practice. Uh, I hope to see you soon on the path. Appreciate you. Bye.